Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. How y'all doing? I just want to say, you know, every once in a while I throw out some gratitude for all of you guys for hanging in with me, for listening, for, um, you know, just being you. Um, I think last month I may have had um, the most downloads of any month um, since my podcast has been around. And I, I don't, I don't do it for that. But it's always nice to know that I'm reaching people and that my words matter to people, that my podcast helps you. I mean, honestly, that's, that's, I do this because I'm trying to, um, affect change in the world. And this is kind of my little slice and how I do it. And just to know, um, the, you know, that, you know, tens of thousands of people listen to this podcast every month just makes me so happy. And it doesn't make me happy because it makes me feel like famous or (laughs) which is kind of ridiculous. Um, but really because it means that I'm reaching people and that I'm making a difference. And that's literally all I want in this world. All that to say, thank you. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing the work on and for yourself, because here's the deal. You know, there's a lot of shit that we got to change in this world. Holy crap. (laughs) Um, Understatement of the century. But the way that we do that is first within ourselves. And by listening to this podcast, that is at least the beginning of you doing that work on yourself that will have a ripple effect and that will change everything moving forward for yourself, for your kids, for the generations that come after you, um, and hopefully globally, because that would be fucking kick-ass. Speaking of, I want to introduce to you my guest today. Um, Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Cohen. You might know her on Instagram as The Divorce Doctor. Elizabeth and I met a few weeks ago when we did um, an episode of the live stream that I do every Saturday with um, Ben and Nikki of Our Happy Divorce and Susan Guthrie of the Divorce and Beyond podcast, some of my favorite, favorite people. And we had um, Elizabeth on to talk about drugs, alcohol, addiction, and divorce. Elizabeth and I, as, as, as happens often when I meet people in my, in the sphere and stuff, we, you know, hit it off really well. But Elizabeth and I have a really shared history around our sort of codependency and Al-Anon work. And so, um, we immediately just bonded <laughs> like sisters. And I was like, I need to have you on my podcast to talk about this stuff. She's, I, I love Elizabeth. Uh, she's the CEO and founder of the online divorce course and membership 
Afterglow, The Light at the Other Side of Divorce. Um, it's a 14-week course that she uh, teaches women how to heal, grow, and thrive after divorce, no matter how difficult the process has been. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from Boston University. By the way, I also went to Boston University. <laughs> um, and Elizabeth was the recipient of the prestigious American Psychological Foundation Research Award for her doctoral research. Uh, she's been featured on the Tamron Hall Show, The Wall Street Journal, NBC News, Women's Health, Huffington Post, Thrive Global, Daily Beast, Good Housekeeping. <laughs> and she's a weekly contributor to Psychology Today with her divorce course column. So, I mean... Obviously, I'm in love with this woman. Um, so, but today we're really talking about sort of the aftermath and the impact that addiction has in the divorce process and in our lives and how we both um, healed from that and move forward from it. So pretty cool stuff, huh? So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Cohen. Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, let's just start with like uh, just a little bit about your your background and the work that you do versus the work that you used. So like, yeah, you're in your transition and all of that stuff. Yeah. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, great. Um, so I like to tell people that I am a shrink, but not like a shrink on TV. Because when you watch TV and see all the shrinks, they're always focusing on the past and trying to understand how your family impacted your life. And while those things are very important, I was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very present focused problem solving type of therapy. Mm -hmm. And I was trained to work with clients. We were just talking about how we both went to BU. I was at BU and I learned how to work with clients who had anxiety. So I did a lot of what we call hierarchies. So if you were afraid of dogs, you know, we would maybe slowly start looking at pictures of dogs and then maybe we would go to the pet store and then we would bring a dog in. So we would, I would help people slowly get comfortable with something uncomfortable. Okay. And it started with that, but it actually, what I'm doing now is the same thing, trying to help people get a little more comfortable with something uncomfortable like divorce. And so I was trained to be an individual therapist. And then about three or four years ago, I thought I really wanted to work with more than just one person one-on-one. -on -one. So I created a program to be able to reach more women in particular who are going through divorce. And especially because so many women that I've spoken to move somewhere. I don't know if you've had this experience, Kate, in your work, move somewhere for their partner and yes. then potentially, right, then they separate, have to stay because of the kids and are totally isolated. Yes, that's a huge, huge problem. Oh, we should talk about that. I mean, I've had clients move and, you know, and some of this is, you know, you have to sort of, I think, figure out like what happened, right? Because some of it can be an abuse uh, tactic mm -hmm. to separate you from your family and then get you isolated. And that is a way of, of maintaining control. Right. Um, or is it just like, you know, what happens when you're a stay at home mom and, and you're sort of at the whim of someone else's career. Right. Exactly. Or you never really knew or could say what you wanted. So you just kind of went along. Yes. Yes, right. Right. And mm -hmm. now you find yourself in a position of how did I get here? Yeah, absolutely. 
right? Totally. And so I wanted to be able to reach so many more women than were at my practice in New York City than was in New York City. So that's when I created the course called the Divorce Course, helping women move through divorce to seeing the next chapter as a, a joyful and op- great opportunity. And then a membership program that allowed us to continue to meet every month to just keep supporting each other and learn from one another. That's so great. So is the program ongoing or is it like, do you run it a couple times a year or like what's exactly. the- it's open? It's open three times a year. I just finished it. It'll be opening again in September. And then the membership is only available to the women who've gone through the course. Right. So once you've gone through the course, you, course you can join. Right. And it's so amazing to me. And I'm sure you have the same experience, Kate, of how alone people go, women going through divorce feel. They yeah. really feel like they're the only person. And I think part of that is because there are really negative stereotypes in media around divorce. Uh-huh. And people still have this shame-based presumption about divorce. I mean, that's what's so cool about you and all your colleagues that you've so graciously introduced me to is that this idea of shifting that and changing that is really happening. But the majority of people feel really isolated and alone. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, I find that, you know, my Facebook group is not, my Facebook group is open, right? To people who haven't done my programs. I I have another one for the ones who have done my program, but Really the one that's the most active is the one that's open to everybody. And it is, I find the same thing. People are like, every time someone posts, at least 10 people are like, oh my God, that's my story. I can't believe that you're experiencing the same thing too. And you know, I just heard this, this quote, it's by a woman named Muriel Ruckheiser, who I've never heard of, but all right. Um, And she says, um, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. And I just thought, you know, and I was talking to uh, another colleague of mine, um, Erica, about this. And she was saying that, you know, that's like the beauty of these kinds of groups, right? Is that when, I mean, this is what happened with the Me Too movement, right? Like, and it and it did the world fucking split open, yes. and that's what happens. I think every day in these groups, when women are telling their truths, when women are sharing themselves authentically and without fear of repercussions, like there becomes there is a groundswell of yeah. you know, and that and that is where you know the world begins to split open. Absolutely. And I think it takes the kind of holding of space that you do for your community to allow women to step into their power and to say, because I've also seen Facebook groups where people don't feel like they can be vulnerable, right? And they have to either take the inventory of their ex or talk about how life is so perfect after. Like, I think you really hold space for all the vulnerability and then people can can model that. It's really yeah. special. And I, you know, I will say like, you know, that, that I, I really do. I hold that so firmly in my, in my Facebook group. And, um, you know, if anyone's listening and you've thought about joining my group, but you've been in other groups and you're like, I, they're hot messes and there's just so much vitriol and there's so much nastiness and there's a lot of X bashing. And I just don't allow for that in the group. I really don't. The group is about, is about us and our process and not taking other people's inventory and really focusing on our own growth and healing because that's how we change the world, right? That's how we change ourselves. That's how we change our circumstances. Absolutely. I always say that when I, that was the moment where I really decided in my own divorce that I was at a crossroads. I was sitting in a playground and I was going through all the stories about my ex and there were so many. 
and I was telling them and everyone had these spaces like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. So much empathy. And I left there with like the slight high. And then I thought, I felt terrible. Like I have a choice right now. I can either continue to have those kind of conversations like every day, or I can figure out how the hell I ended up in this situation. And that right. the only thing I can control, which we know is myself. And so I let go of that story and it was hard. It still pulls me even today, but I just turn it with the women in my program and with myself into what am I feeling? What's going on for me? What is right. being triggered in me when I see yep. how frustrated I am with their behavior? Because I don't know about the people you work with, but certainly the people I work with, the behavior that their ex is doing is not new. No, exactly. <laughs> We've been doing this forever. Exactly. exactly. That revelation that you would think, oh my God, it, right. This person does this and how do you react? What do you feel? What do you do? And how can you shift that just the slightest bit? And it's pretty powerful, as you know, when women can start doing that. It's, I mean, it really is. And you and I, you and I have similar sort of healing trajectories and paths, right? And I think that that was... That was the greatest, the biggest learning for me, right? Because, no, I could, I could spend my life pointing out all the terrible things he was doing, right? <laughs> like, I really could. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is I was primed to be in a relationship with someone who was treating me the way that my ex was treating me at the time, right? Like, I was primed for it. And, you know, I kept, I kept showing up for it. You know, like I just kept showing up for it. So what is it in me that continues to show up for that? Right? Exactly. And then I started realizing that while there were things he did that were painful and difficult and really destructive to our family, there were also things that I did. I wasn't, you know, drinking in the same excess he was, but I sure as hell wasn't allowing him to have his own destiny and his own experience. I was understandably controlling and managing and doing all the things you do with an addict, but that was my role in it. And so once I could see that, and I'll tell you, I am remarried not to another addict. And guess what? I still like to try to control. (laughs) (laughs) So it's and I still have to work on it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was that, God, I mean, that was my biggest learning too. I mean, I, you know, I, are we outing ourselves here? I mean, I'm always out. Totally out. Okay. So, um, you know, when I first went to, when I went to my very first Al-Anon meeting, uh, I was like, we've already talked about this publicly anyway, so I don't know why I was asking you. <laughs> we already had this conversation in the live stream. Um, but my very first Al-Anon meeting was like the most powerful thing I'd ever heard. It was like an out-of-body experience because people were saying things were coming out of people's mouths that I had been thinking and feeling or didn't even know I was thinking and feeling. And they said them and I was like, oh my God, like, oh, that's what that is, right? Because I was so disconnected from my feelings anyway. So people were naming things and I was like, oh, that's the thing that I'm feeling, right? And so much about the the need to control and the, and you know, that's where, that's what's, I think, a really confusing part about this, right? And maybe we can sort of pull it apart because on the one hand, yeah, when you're living with active addiction, like 
you actually do have to control everything because like on the one hand, right. You do have, and I say have to, you know, in air quotes here because shit's going to fall apart if you don't. Right. But yet the control is the most destructive and damaging thing that you're actually doing. I wonder I think when you're talking, I'm such a good point. I'm thinking to myself, Kate, you know, I think for me, the issue was controlling while being in denial about what the real problem was. Oh, that's interesting. I guess the de- I was in denial that this that the situation was unmanageable. I by controlling it, I yes. still thought right that somehow yep. I could fix it. Yeah, and just I had two very little kids, and I understand other women who go through this. I wanted desperately to make it work, so I tried all of these ways that I I knew. And can you imagine being married to an psychologist. I mean, I was like sending him to every therapist and every person possible. I think that would change it. Um, as if, and, and really not acknowledging that he'd become unmanageable. And all I could really do was, um, distance with love. And I didn't do that. I put myself right in there, all the fixing and doing. And it was, it was unbelievable. And then got pissed off at him when he didn't follow how I thought he should change. We'd love to do that. <laughs> exactly. And I had the same experience when I went to Al-Anon. I mean, I heard these women and men, which was another, that was so powerful to hear men being vulnerable. Yeah. That shifted mm-hmm. the whole, my whole experience. I couldn't believe that there were actually literally men who could talk about their feelings. That's really shifted how I saw men in general. And women who talked about being controlling, but also laughed and talked about what they had in their lives and weren't, you know holding so tight the way I was. So they were, they were talking about their controlling nature and letting it go and laughing and being, being, um, light. I just wanted to be light because when I was in my codependency, I was so dark and so tense and so tight. Yes. I love That is such a great way to, to ex- explain it. Cause it's so true, right? Like there's, and it's like, like a classic, um, like cliche of being uptight, right? Like we really are so uptight and it's just so unattractive and it's so overbearing and it's so uncomfortable to be that uptight. Right. And when you just like, when you do have that ability to just like, let it go and laugh at yourself and laugh at your uptightness and all of that stuff. And you know, unfortunately, that uptightness also that it's like a death grip on because you're so fucking scared. Yeah. You're at the uh, underneath all of it, right? There's so much fear. Yeah, so, so much fear. fear. There's so much fear, uh, and I think a lack of a belief in yourself. Like I didn't think, oh God, yeah, I could handle really the truth of what was going on. I thought I could handle my version of it. But if I was really, I remember um, when my ex, we, when I was in grad school, we were apart for three years. We'd see each other on the weekends. So then when I finally moved back, I think it was the first night where I, I realized, oh, this guy drinks every night a lot, you know, a lot. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, you and I are keeping this secret. We are never telling anybody ever. And I shut it down because I didn't think I could manage the feelings of actually being in reality. I literally said that to myself. I was like, you're going to get married in two weeks. You have to just shut it down. Yep. And so I was so afraid of my capacity to handle 
a difficult conversation, difficult feelings, potential heartbreak. Like I didn't believe in myself. Totally. Totally. Right. It's yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because I had a similar conversation with myself. Like and it was, it was early in our relationship. This was not even near our marriage. This was like early, early on. This was like within the first couple of months of us dating. And he, I mean, it was like, you know what it's like, New York City radiators, right? There was, there, there was a broken radiator and it was banging at four o'clock in the morning. And the rage that came out of my ex was so intense. And I remember lying there being so freaked out. Like I'd never actually experienced that level of rage. And like, it was so not right sized. It was so like sort of weird. Like, cause it was like, wait, what are you like? Really? <laughs> um, but I remember saying to myself, this is what you're, this is what you're signing up for. Don't forget that. The, don't forget it. This is what you're signing up for. And, and the conversation I had with myself was, okay, I can, I can, I, that is a sacrifice, but I love him. And that is a sacrifice that I will make. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I can so, I, I mean, we, we are sisters in this, in this feeling, uh, which we must have learned growing up. Absolutely. Which is what I learned, which is you just sublimate your feelings uh-huh. and make everybody else happy. Yep. And if someone has addiction in your family, you just ignore it. I didn't have that because I didn't have, well, I, well, I, well, I did. That's not true. I had, there was addiction in my family growing up, but I, I wasn't living with it. So mm. I, I, I learned it more from having a mom who I really hope isn't listening to this, who <laughs> she was the Al-Anon. She um, had grew up with, you know, her mom was a gambling addict. And so her, her need to control is so strong and she's never taken a look at it. And it caused, it caused huge rifts in our relationship all my life. But, you know, at the time, I think as a child, what it did was it, it, it disallowed me from, from individuating. So, you know, it, when it came to like making choices for myself, I had never made a choice for myself. I had never been allowed to, I I couldn't have told you my favorite color, literally, you know, we would go out to eat and, you know, walking up and down the streets of New York and like looking at all the different, you know, the, the menus of all the restaurants. And I would just, and I would just stand back and he would choose Mm -hmm. because I didn't have an opinion. I didn't know what I wanted to eat. I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) And that, and you probably had watched your mom also sublimate her own needs because of her having had a gambling addict parent. So like, you notice something, you notice something problematic and you just looked and looked somewhere else. Right. You don't say, I always thought like, wow, there might've been a woman out there who was like, this is not okay. Like I could never say this is not okay. Even your example with the meal, same thing. I say, I was like, I don't care where I eat. No, but I I think I do care. I mean, now I I actually, absolutely. Cause then I would get in there. I'd be like, I don't want this. (laughs) Exactly. But it was just, you couldn't say it because you couldn't, if you say it, then you'll make that other person uncomfortable. Right. Then you won't love me. Right. Or, you know, whatever. I think that that's something that a lot of women who post-divorce and men too, um, 
have a hard time with, which is figuring out what they like, what they want. I have a whole module in my program about really creating your life by design, not by default. My ex decorated my apartment. I had no idea what I liked. I didn't know what design I liked. Well, like you said, what colors I liked. I really didn't know because I was just yesing all the time. And I I think that's common with when you get divorced. Yes, absolutely. Especially, especially women who, you know, like, you know, who have sort of given over, you know, those of us with more codependent uh, tendencies, right. Who have given over things. I I know exactly what it was that I was going to say. It flew back. Um, which is that, you know, like you said, you know, the, that we never saw someone saying, actually, I don't choose that behavior. Right. Or like, that's not okay with me. And then following through and standing up for it. And when I talk to, because because of, you know, going, because what I really work with women on is the, should I stay or should I go portion? Right. And they're like, I need to stay for my kids. And I, and that's exactly the example that we talk about, right? Like what model are you giving to your children? And imagine, imagine raising children who have a model of womanhood as, as someone who says, that doesn't work for me. Thank you. I'm, I'm opting out of this because that's how we break the cycle. Because if we go, my mother, you know, her gambling addict, then me, right. I broke the cycle. I don't know how many generations back it went. I have no idea. I mean, I have chills when you're talking Kate, because that is, I couldn't agree more. And that is something that I, whenever someone says, I don't want to leave for my kids, I'm thrilled because I think I have the best retort to that. Which is like, let me tell you what will happen if you, what your kids will learn if you stay. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes share with people that I um, am the child of two addicts and who are still married, but never should have stayed married. And it was so much worse than had they gotten married, stayed, they had gotten divorced. There is, it is, there is nothing worse than being raised by two parents who hate and resent each other, but Mm -hmm. stay together. And the fact that, and, and the thought that kids can't sense that is completely wrong. I often, I often say, um, to women, you know, if your daughter came to you and said, I'm in a really bad relationship, let's say in a heterosexual relationship with a man, and I'm really unhappy, but I'm going to stay, I'm going to stick it out. What would you say to her? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. If you tell, if you told, you know, if, if, if your daughter came to you and told you, your story, right. what would you say? Right. And nine times out of 10 women are like, holy shit. Yeah. Right? And it's scary, but that we can handle things that are scary. And we, and, and I think, I think it, when people get to me, it's interesting, probably to you too. Um, there's been a lot of time when they've tried to make it work. So yeah. there's a lot of that kowtowing, giving up your needs, even more. And so when they start coming to work with me, I really have to help them release even the voice of their ex in their mind. Mm, yes. I was, right? Like I was just talking with someone today who um, her ex used to tell her she was crazy and too emotional. And so every time she has an emotion, she hears his voice. And so we're trying to kind of pull those two things apart. And that's what I say to women too, who say, 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 shall I stay? It's just so you know, you're absorbing things all the time. There is no way for this not to be affecting you. Right. Yes, absolutely. And how, you know, and we have, I've, I have women, you know, with chronic health conditions, right? Like, 
there's so, there's so many ways that this, that the stress manifests. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been talking with someone recently who's, you know, should I stay or should I go? I usually don't get that, but in, in my practice. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't want you to get a chronic physical condition. Like I am very concerned you know, they, if they, she said, well, I can deal with my mental health if it's a problem. Okay. I'm very concerned about your physical health because we now know the connection between emotions and your body. And my, one of my favorite books is um, Christian Northrup's book, Dodging Energy Vampires, right? And I love how she describes like this, at least in a heterosexual relationship, this guy who looks great and is doing great. And then this woman next to him who's just like, looks literally like he's eating off of her totally depleted, migraines, backaches, GI symptoms. That is, that is no joke. That is no joke. It's so interesting. I haven't read that one of hers, but that's, 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 I mean, how many times do you see that? It's, it's heartbreaking. It's yeah, it really is. What you said before Kate is so true. Like we need the beautiful power of women so much right now in this world. We need their voice. We need their creativity and their imagination. And when you're stuck in a marriage that's unhappy and that you're, you're trying to please another person, we lose you and like, and we need you. And you know, that's, and I always say like, that's the design, (laughs) right? Like that's the patriarchy at work in women, right? Because First of all, our, our collective power is crazy town, right? Mm-hmm. And even our indiv- and our individual power is, you know, and so these, right, that those energy vampires, right, sucking on us and sucking off of us and, and keeping us home and keep oh. separating us, keeping us small and keeping us away from our families and, you know, taking us out of the workforce, all that. It's all the design. Yes. And, I don't, and I don't judge, by the way, I'm not, I don't judge I want to say it again because I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I don't judge stay-at-home moms. I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, But the sacrifice is tremendous, especially in divorce. When you get divorced and you've been a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. And if you're doing it because you want to do it, it's right for you. But again, so quickly in relationships, we start doing things to please the other person. Mm -hmm. Lose what we really like. Yeah. And I, again, we come to it, right? So I found somebody, I remember, forget when he was telling me exactly how to cut tomatoes. And I was like, this is so annoying. But of course, I found somebody like that because I thought I needed to be told what to do because that is how I grew up. I thought everything right. was my fault. So I take ownership over that. I had to stop thinking everything was my fault or I would end up with another person like that. And right. the second the second or third date I went on, I think I told this story on the live stream. Went out with this guy. He was great. We had such a fun time. It was really fun. It was like so exciting to like realize I was still alive se- sexually, sensually. It was so cool. And he turns to me at one point on the date and he says to me, you can prescribe me Clonopin and Xanax and Ativan, right? Because you're a psychologist. And I thought to myself, first of all, that's a psychiatrist, but that's another story. I thought, here I go again. Like there's another addict. I mean, it was just... Yes. And I had met him like at a wedding. It was so funny. It was like, I had this. And, and so I realized like that level of attraction, that that was my attraction. Uh, and I re- only realized it. I left. I didn't realize it. I went to an Al-Anon meeting. I was sitting there and I thought, oh my God, this is the 
happened to me. And that's why Al-Anon's so powerful because there's other people going through it. And yeah. I couldn't get, I couldn't like trick myself into thinking, oh, but he's actually a banker. So he's fine. It's like, no, no, he's a fellow. He's, he's a full on addict. He just asked you if you can prescribe him like hardcore Multiple drugs. <laughs> Multiple sure. hardcore drugs. That's not right. Totally. Totally. Uh, He's like, he's great. And I'm like, okay, just notice that and make a different decision. So again, it's not about, it's not like I'm a different, I I still have the same history. I just can notice when that comes up and try to shift my choices and my behavior. Totally. And, you know, and, and, you know, I, I want to be really transparent about this, right? Because you're right. We still make the same choices, right? And it's like, where we still have the same instincts, right? Those are our base. Those are our, those are like, you know, we will, us Al-Anon's men, we will find them. We always say like across a crowded room, like, like you can like a thousand people and I will find the one fucking dude. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'll find the one. And, uh, and it's, how, you know, and I've done it. I've done it in my like recovered, recovered life where, you know, be, uh, I mean, I was in a two and a half year relationship with someone who was fucking raging alcoholic and it was a really damaging, this is the trauma bond. You know, I talk about this with a, in an episode about trauma bonds. Like I had a serious trauma bond with this man. Like it was the most destructive. And this was after like 15 years of Al-Anon and it was two and a half fucking years. And I was still in that loop of like, do you think that maybe you have a problem with alcohol as, and he was like, you know, I talked to my therapist about it and he's decided that I'm not an alcoholic, you know? And we were like, okay, so I guess you're not an alcoholic. Well, there you go. And like, did his drinking bother me? No, actually he was really fun. We had a great time when we were drinking until we didn't like until he was doing some really fucking crazy ass shit. And then it was really destructive. And then, right. And it was like, but my point is that like, you know, so it took, it took a couple, this one took a couple of years. This was so, so, um, so dark and so difficult and, you know, and really got in there. Um, you know, but there are other ones where it's like, you know, I'll go out with them for like a couple of months even. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, you know, it's really, I'm so glad you're mentioning this, Kate. And I, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And I'm so proud of you for <sighs> talking about it so openly and moving through it. And I'm so excited for what comes next and what you learned from that. Um, so I hold that so deeply. Um, I really, I think, I think of it kind of as um, the core issue that I have learned um, about people who use any sort of substance is this difficulty sitting with emotions. And so even if somebody is not actively drinking, has a drinking problem, it can take some time until you realize, oh, I'm with another person who makes me feel small so they can feel big, can't really be vulnerable, can't have humility, you know, and sometimes it goes along with drinking or we know there can be dry drunks too. It can go along with overworking. And I think that it's so subtle. Like I want to give you a lot of space and credit because I think there's, it's subtle. I think that, you know, my story was obvious, but he also was really complimentary and really fun and all these, all these things. And it was, I don't know what to say. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing, but it's a little hard to know all the time. Yeah. If you're, you know, what 
you're, if you're, unless you're looking for, I just, I have just, I had decided for myself and I talked to clients about this, like having your core things like humility, vulnerability, and, you know, being able to share emotions. Like if you're an addict, you can't do those things. If you're someone who's a narcissist, you can't do this, you know, like, so they can pretend really well. And that's, and that's, you know, that's, I'm glad you brought this up because it's never black and white. It's never black and white. And I think that, you know, from the outside, sometimes it seems black and white or in hindsight and retrospect, it might look more black and white, but when you're in it, it's never black and white and they can, and you know, they can pretend really well and they're usually the most gregarious and the most fun and everyone loves them. And, you know, and you're like the most special person in the world because you cracked the code or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And when you're in it, man, it's insidious. I mean, it really, really, really is. It really is. And you have to be, when I coach people about dating and, and, in therapy and in the program, I usually say the person, if you think you've known the person forever after just a few dates, you have, there's someone from your past, yep. step away, go with someone who is not giving you crazy butterflies. People hate when I say this, they get so annoyed with me. And it's um, true. It's, but it's so, so true. True. Cause the thing that's pulling you is something historical. There's something that, you know, and I think you know, for women, especially the women I work with, they're so loving. They're so caring. A lot of them are healers and they felt like they could heal their partner. And one thing I will say is never, ever should any partner heal the other. And I think this is not, yeah, this is really important. Yeah. We, I mean, I talked about this in, in the, in trauma bond stuff, like not only, not only is it not your fucking job, you're actually the exact wrong person to be able to do it. Totally. Totally. And one thing that hit me over the head in Al-Anon, I don't know if you had this experience. I was humbled to admit that I really liked having someone who was a fuck up because it made me look really great. Yes. I looked so capable. I looked so together. So when he fucked up, yeah, sure. I'll tell you the whole story, how upset I am. But there was also a part of me I wasn't even aware of that liked it. Yep. And he was so emotionally unaware. He was never going to ask me how I was feeling. Like in my new relationship, if I'm like, so are you upset to my husband? He'll say like, I don't know. Are you upset? I'm like, please don't ask me. I ask the questions. I do not answer them. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> like when you're with someone who's not emotionally vulnerable, you can bitch about them as much as you want. But I will tell you it's because it's, it's uncomfortable for you to be emotionally vulnerable. I think. I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's projection, it's protection. It's all of that stuff. I think you're, you're totally right. And then you also, you know, there's, and I think that there's like this false intimacy with that sort of healing part. Like I'm the one who can heal him and, you know, you don't know him like I do and I can, you know, I'm the one and all of that. And it makes you feel like special. And like, there's a sort like, there's an intimacy that, that there's not, that's actually destructive. And nobody also wants to be fixed. Like that's the thing. It's so not giving the person their own dignity. What's that fr- they thing they say in Al-Anon of um, giving someone the dignity to have their own life? Like, yeah. Who am I to think that I knew? I thought I knew everything that was best for my ex. I thought I knew exactly how he should live his life. And to be perfectly honest, I still struggle with that. 
you know, I think I know how he should parent my kids. You know what? And, He's his and, own person. And by the way, you might, like, you might be right. But that, still doesn't, but that doesn't give him the dignity of his own experience, right? Yeah. And to, I think it's the dignity of making his own mistakes, yeah. right? Because if we're constantly like, oh, no, no, don't do it that way, then he doesn't, he doesn't get to learn. He doesn't get the experience of, of choosing for himself, which is a really empowered place exactly. to live, to, to, to you know, move from, right? Yeah. I keep thinking about how this is all about not being able, for me at least, to tolerate discomfort, which is the irony of all ironies. Cause I was taught to be an uh, anxiety therapist, helping people. All I do all day long is help people tolerate discomfort, but I just could not. And that's still what stick, gets sticky for me. Because if I think that um, I have to see him in a way that I don't want to see him, or I have to have my kids feel uncomfortable, I just get, I, that's when I want to control. Yeah. And so when I feel uncomfortable, I just want to jump in and change it. And it, I, I sit in those rooms still and I hear people say what they, how they want to control. And I'm reminded, oh, right. We have to turn that over. We have to let go of our need to control because it's going to not help him, but it's really going to ruin me. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's it, right? It's, it, it's not going to help him and it will ruin you. It will ruin me. I, I went into the rooms. Um, finally, people had mentioned it to me. Because I was like, literally, I mean, this is no joke. I was on my knees begging him not to drink. Literally on my knees begging him not to drink. And I was on the floor looking at the hardwood floor. And I thought, okay, that he might be drinking too much, but I'm really, something is really wrong with me. Like, I've really lost it. And then I went into the rooms and people would tell those stories about how they did that too. And I thought, oh, yeah, hey, I'm not alone. Like I was this curled is- up in the fetal position in the corner. <laughs> like, you know, and my ex was sober when I met him, but there, but it was all still the same behaviors. And it was all, and I was literally in the corner, rocking myself in the fetal position in the corner. And I was like, I've been here before. Yeah. This is not about him. Yeah. All of these feelings I have had a million times before. Right. These this is, I am the common denominator here. And that's yeah. when I walked into my first meeting too. Oh, so good. <laughs> it's so wonderful to hear when you say like, I'm the common, when you put your foot into a room or into your program or my program or therapy or anywhere, you're saying like, I want to change as opposed to, I have to change them. And that is just such a better place to be because we just really can't change other people. Yep. It's, I mean, we really can't. What do you, we really can't. And is, is your, is your ex sober now? Just, he is sober. Good. Yeah. But he, um, and, um, he is still limited. I mean, the, the, the very painful thing for, and maybe some women who are listening have a similar experience is he started drinking and really, and drinking and drugging when he was 13. So he really is 13 in a lot of emotional ways. And so my expectations also when he got sober was, was unfair. I put a lot of unfair expectations on him based on the sober people I knew from Al-Anon. Um, right. And so I've had to really adjust to that. And a, my therapist gave me such good advice. At one point, um, my, hu- my ex-husband has always had visitation and not custody. I have full custody. 
And I would go in week after week and think, how could he not ask for more? Once he got sober, he was gone for the picture for about two years. But how could he not ask for more? How can he not want more? How can he not want more? And she looked at me and she said, maybe he knows he can't do more. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, I just got the chills again, but it just grounded me. And like, who do I think I am to tell him what he can right. do? He's the one and who. Thank God. And thank God, if he does, if he knows he can't handle more, thank God he's not asking for it. Exactly. Like to honor his sobriety and to honor what he knows that he can do. Yeah. And I I tell clients um, also that, you know, because sometimes the way we're talking, I know if you haven't heard about Al-Anon, it can sound like you're being passive. It doesn't sound like we're just like giving up. So I really want to say that it's not about giving up because when I let go of the clench of trying to fix him. I felt healthier. I was able to create a beautiful life that I wanted and a new relationship that really filled me. And on at some point when I wasn't even looking, he came back and said, that was really shitty what I did. He, the thing I always wanted, which was for him to apologize or to, he, he only did when I was not looking, literally. Right. Yep. Yep. Amazing. I always think of you know, how Al-Anon started. Right. And I think about, I always think about those women in the kitchen, you know, for those who don't know, right. Al-Anon was really started by all the wives of the alcoholics who had been spent their entire lives trying to get their men sober. And then now these men were sober and they're in these meetings every day. And the women were, were now their job, now their job wasn't to get them sober. Now their job was to support their sobriety and like make cookies and coffee for the meetings. And then they were all in the kitchen together and they were like, well, now what do we do? Exactly. <laughs> I, love I love that so much. I think about it so much also because I've heard that so many of the men who, when they finally went to AA, um, had lost their driver's license because of so many DUIs. Right. right. So the women drove them. Right. And then they all were gathered there, right? Yes. And then talked about their experience. And I guess one of the beautifully smart women thought, let's stop talking about them and let's figure out how we ended up here. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Right. And I think that my, my point in, in sort of recounting that, that, that story is that, is that when you finally are able, when you finally take the focus off of other people, the amount of, I have yeah. no idea who I was. I used to, I called myself a head on legs. Yes. I couldn't, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't have told you my favorite color because I was so concerned about like not pissing you off or making sure that, you know, I had the same color as yours or whatever, which is insane, but whatever. Um, that, that we spend so much time with our focus being outward on the other person and managing and controlling and magnifying glassing and all of that stuff. And it completely leaves us barren and with no sense of who we are. And so it's only when you take the focus off of the other person that you can actually have anything left for yourself. Exactly. And I'm thinking as you're talking, Kate, you know, I con- certainly controlled my ex-husband because I learned that behavior, but I also controlled him because I thought I could only be okay if he was okay. Right. But I, it's actually a completely wrong premise. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I can only be okay if I'm okay. So I actually, I was trying to make myself feel better by fixing him. I felt like if he gets better, then our life will be better. If he did this, I'll be okay. If only he would. Exactly. Fill in the blank. Exactly. But even when he did, because my ex was sober on and off, I still wasn't happy. Right. 
So it was me who wasn't happy. It was so hard to see that though. It really was so hard. It is, it is so hard. What advice would you give to Mm -hmm. um, people who are listening right now who are living with active addiction of any kind, right? doesn't have to be alcohol, could be, you know, drugs, porn, I don't know. Um, and who are really kind of, you know, listening to this go being like, yeah, but if he would, then, I mean, really, if he would stop, then things would be different, better, X, Y, Z. What would you say to them? First of all, most people who are in those relationships, I would suggest you think about the time when they did stop that. Because most people have had a small period of time when they did. Mm-hmm. And what was that like? Was everything perfect and rosy and great. That's the first thing I would just kind of go back to what your experience was and and evaluate it. I would also ask what about their behavior changing is going to change you? So let's say they stop drugging at night or drinking at night so I can go to bed earlier. I don't have to stay up and wait for them to come home. Why are you staying up and waiting for them to come home? Is yeah. that keeping them alive? Is that so really asking right. what is the what with them stopping, what would you be able to do now? Mm-hmm. And is there any possibility you can do that now anyway? Right. And I think that God, I just remember being in that place, being like, well, no, because I can't, because I can't sleep, because he's not home, and because I'm because I'm worried, because I'm right, because, 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 because. Not because right. of the wonderful things he does. <laughs> if you went, if you called a girlfriend or took a long bath and found a way to go to sleep, how is that going to change him in any way? Right. It's not going to change the outcome, right? He is not going to be safer. He's not like none of those. You're right. Right. I'm just saying, I know that thinking of totally. how, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course I can't go to sleep. I remember, I remember someone talking about, you know, my ex-husband would pat, like just pass out everywhere. And she, they, someone said to me, well, okay, you should put a blanket on him and then step over him yep. instead of like waking him up and wanting Bring to go bed and all of yeah. that. And I thought, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that? And slowly, slowly one stay at a time. I mean, I would really say to someone, you know, Al-Anon or any sort of other support group that you can go to with people who've been through it is unlike anything else because there's so much shame. I know um, I had so much shame for the stuff I put up with. It was so humiliating. Um, So to be able to hear what uh, that other people had done that and they were still like normal people and interesting and smart really took the shame down because we do, we will do remarkable things for people we love to get them to get better. Yeah. And some of those things were really shameful. And I, I ha- it had to be in a room with other people got it. Absolutely. And again, hearing other women and other people's stories, right? Hearing people saying like, oh, and then I put the, you know, the blanket on him and I stepped over him and I went to bed and I had a great night's sleep and the next day, right? And you're like, like it takes hearing other people yeah. speaking those things. Like I, like I said, for my very first meeting, speaking those things out loud and going, whoa, yeah. Well, like when you said you were curled up in a bottle, I was like, of course you were. Like, yeah. that's how we are before we go in the rooms, right? Like, we just have... <laughs> you said you were on your knees, and I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> Mine was just on, was on its side. <laughs> in the same place. And to like, and I thought I was, you know, I thought I was the only person in the whole city, in the whole world, who was on my knees with the one 
alcoholic. And I think the other piece is that you, I mean, I will never forget that my first meeting, so many people came over to me, you know, you learn from people who've been through it mm-hmm. and get support from them. So you don't feel alone because it can feel so lonely. And I used to call people all the time. And yep. instead of talking to him and yelling at him, I would call people from Al-Anon and get support. Yeah. It's really amazing. The support, the support in those rooms is so, so incredible. It's so, so incredible. incredible. And if you're someone who's in recovery for AA, I just want to say there's been a lot of, I think, shit talking that Al-Anon is about like taking the alcoholics inventory. Like I've, even though there's a lot of double winners, I've heard some people I work with who are in AA, like afraid to go. And the truth is oh, like, God. we love you more than anything. We all have loved alcohol at addicts. That's why we're there. And we still love you. Right. And we're just there to figure out how we can best support addicts without controlling everything. So I guess I just, I think sometimes that gets misconstrued. It does. And also I do think, you know, I've definitely been to meetings where it was, there was not a lot of recovery and there was a lot of, you know, past based inventory taking and, you know, and that's just, that's just a bad meeting. (laughs) That's like what is six meetings or less before you decide. I wonder what you think about this, Kate. Sometimes I recommend, like I have a client now whose parents have psychopathology, but they don't have drinking. But I yeah. still have to go to Al-Anon because I haven't found like CODA to be as helpful, at least in the meetings where we are on the East Coast. I so, so agree. I so agree. Absolutely. I think, you know, I remember, you know, when I first got into Al-Anon, I was like, I was like, everybody needs this. Everybody needs this. You know, this is just like, I don't care if you have addiction or not. Um, right. If you relate to the stories, then like, Yeah. Or the, oh. or the experience, right? It's not just the stories, it's the experience. Yeah. And the other thing for me, I could talk about this forever, is that there, you know, the structure of it, the traditions, all of it taught me how to be a, a human, how to be a, an adult. It really guided me um, so much. And so I really, I think it's a, it's an amazing place. I always say I'm grateful that I married an alcoholic because I was able to go to Al-Anon and I was able to get clear on myself. Like I, I am really grateful to him. I have told him that before um, because I don't know if I would have done this work. Yeah, totally. Totally. And this, I mean, this was, this work was the, was the pivotal, most life-changing work I've ever done. And everything I did beyond that was on the foundation of the I, work. I would completely agree. And I, I was very lucky. I don't know how, how if in your rooms, if this was the case, but in New York, I mean, you know, I was in New York. I mostly, most of my Al-Anon was in New York. It was 10 years of New York before, what, yeah, before I moved in, here. In Manhattan? Uh-huh. We'll have to talk about which meeting you went to. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, so in New York, like, you know, it was God was good orderly direction, the universe. Like I never felt... I once went to one in Connecticut and they said that our father prayer, I'm Jewish. I didn't even know the our father. I never felt the God part until I went not in New York. Um, yeah. But I, that's another thing to tell because that's another thing people are like, oh, I don't know if I can it's go. It's religious. It's a cult. Yeah, yeah. It's not religious. It's not a cult. And you find the right meanings for you. And so it, I agree. I mean, I, I think that it, it laid the foundation for what I, for me now as a human, and for the work that I'm doing. Me too. I, I adore you. See, we could I, literally I could talk to you forever about this. Forever. And <laughs> we were like, what are we going to talk about? Well, uh, duh. <laughs> also, it's so good because there is a, there is a, tra- there is a tradition about not, you know, 
proselytizing about it. So we don't get to talk about it that much, but I think it's also important for people to know about it and what our personal experience is. So to yeah. be able to talk about it with someone who gets it is it's like meeting a sister that I've from a, you know never met before. So I'm so totally, totally. Well, we knew that from like the very first time we spoke. We knew that from the second to <laughs> first time. <laughs> totally. Um, so tell everyone where they can find you and, uh, and anything else you want people to know. Oh yeah, sure. The other thing I was going to say is I'm sure people are interested. Alanon really helped me with figuring out how to find a better partner next. Yeah. That would be really helpful. Yes. People want um, that for sure. Yeah. So both like seeing men be vulnerable and then also working on my shit in there, that really, really helped a lot. So I yeah. credit it hundred percent. Um, so I can be found on Instagram at the divorce doctor, also on Facebook at the divorce doctor. Um, my e my website is drelizabethcohen.com. I run a challenge. Um, it's going to start in a few months for helping you make the best decisions during your divorce. So you can oh. sign up for that there. And I yeah. also have a guide for having your stress, a stress-free divorce, doing lots of different cognitive strategies, behavioral strategies, and body-based strategies. So that's there too. And I love to hear from people. I, I call divorced women and men, super people, super women, super men, because it's so hard to go through it. So I'm so impressed with anyone who has. I love it. Thank you so much. So, so much. And all of that information will be in the show notes, obviously. So yay. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Oh my God, it was so good. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.